Um, I did not get in a bar fight. So I just fell off my bike, it's all. So not a big deal. Um, but in case that distracts, I did a wedding last night and I think it was a little distracting. The father of the bride might have asked me, did you get in a bar fight? I was like, no, I'm a pastor, but it's good. So <laughs> I think he was joking. So, but um, I'm Jack. I'm Bethany Northeast lead pastor and we're in a series in the Song of Solomon. We're in chapter three. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, go and open to that and you can have it on your phone or some of you have physical Bibles, which is great. So I invite you to be there. Let me go ahead and take a, t- a moment to pray and then we'll just dive into God's word together. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for this opportunity. We've already had to, to be in your presence and to worship together in community. Uh, thanks for the Sansom family, the celebration we have, uh, we've gotten to be a part of. Um, help us, God, equip us as a congregation to, as Jenny already articulated, to be their family of faith and to understand what it looks like to be brothers and sisters and cousins and uncles. And thank you that we have that opportunity. Thanks now that we get to open your word together in community as well. So would your spirit uh, guide this conversation we're going to have and lead our hearts toward not only new revelation, but would you encourage each of us where we're coming from? Uh, Those that have come from weeks that have been more challenging, would you lift us, God? Uh, Those that maybe need challenge in our lives, (laughs) would you challenge us? We thank you that your word does these things. We pray these in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Song of Solomon, chapter 3. I don't know if you've been here the last few weeks, but we're kind of looking at um, the Song of Solomon through a unique lens, a a little bit of a non-traditional view, which is this kind of idea, and I'll get into in a moment, but that the Song of Solomon is uh, really a story that involves three characters, not just Solomon and this woman who it's often in your Bibles to say he and she, he and she, but really there's three characters. There's this woman who is the main narrator of the story, and then there's two men. And uh, one of the men is this sort of anonymous man who is the one who's often speaking to the woman. The other is, we believe, Solomon, who's kind of lurking in the background. I'm going to get a little more into uh, who he is today. Let me ask you this question. Uh, we've, have you ever gone to one of those parties, uh, a wedding, <laughs> and, and you're, you're not known by everybody? And, or you go to a neighborhood gathering, it's neighborhood night out in August, you're going to go there, and not everybody in the neighborhood knows you, uh, or knows what you do. You go to a, one of your kids' school events, you know, you go to like a sporting event or a play or just whatever it is, we do this occasionally. And uh, you're in this conversation, you meet a new person you've never met before, and, and what's like, what's the first question, or one of the first questions that you're often asked in, that, in those settings? Yeah, what do you do? And it's kind of become our 21st century version of the icebreaker. You know, we could probably do that here and learn a lot because we're really interested in kind of, um, yeah, we're, we're interested in each other in that way, but it's kind of a loaded question if you think about it. It's kind of as one part of genuine curiosity. Like, where are you from 9 to 5 or from 6 to 6, you know, in many cases, Monday through Friday? You know, what, where are you? Where do you spend the majority of your time? One part, curiosity, uh, mixed with, I think, two parts of value judgment. So it's sort of, as an individual, people, I think, looking at you and then, in, in a way, though maybe not consciously, determining your value in our society. How do you contribute to our common good? You know, what's your social status? Uh, what's your worth? 
Are you making the kind of money I'm making? Are you in one of the top five professions? Are you contributing to the health and the well-being of our world? Uh, you all know what I do, <laughs> pastor, uh, not a bartender. But uh, prior to moving to, to Lake City Prez, when I was asked this question, do you know what I often answered? I'll tell you right away, I didn't say pastor, because that today in Seattle is a conversation killer. Uh, so I would often say teacher. I'm a teacher. Which I know you're going, okay, but the Bible says don't lie. But we used to meet in high school, and I taught, I teach, so that it, it was, you know, keeping the conversation open. Okay, so there's that. Um, and as much as and you're not laughing, you're supposed to be laughing at this moment, like, Jack, you're a pastor. No. So as much as we love our work, and all of you probably love your work to a degree, maybe you don't always love every season, there's peaks and valleys to it. And this can include those that work in traditional and non-traditional vocations. So you have stay-at-home parents. That's a kind of work. You have pastors. You have people who are in tech professions, accounting, architecture. You have teachers, all kinds of different uh, vocations here. Whether you love it or don't love it, it does not define you fully. Your work doesn't. We are more than what we do. You have to be more than what you do. God didn't create human doers. It's part of who we are, but it's not all of who we are, which is, which is why it's been interesting for me to learn about this new movement within uh, companies like Facebook and Slack and The Gap. It's toward bringing, it's quote-unquote, bringing your whole self to work. Has anybody heard of this? Does anybody work for a company that's like emphasizing this, bringing your whole self to work? This is what it's at. It's, it, these companies are, are emphasizing this, this desire that they have for you to bring your passions and your strengths as well as your flaws and vulnerabilities to the workplace each day. So talents and skills that you contribute directly to work, as well as hobbies, pet projects. And the recognition is that life is just this mashup. It's a mashup, right? And so you cannot, they, they call this like, you can't just check such a significant part of yourself at the door and expect to be a contributing worker or citizen. So you've been given, what reality is all of us have one life to live. There is, I think that's a soap opera, right? Or something like that. You have one life to live. So the question I think these companies are asking is, why not just live that life fully? Like, why not? Why Give it a try. Why try and live five lives? That just is not going to end well. Uh, Stuart Butterfield, he's the CEO and co-founder of Slack. Anybody know what Slack is? A few of you use it. We can become Slack buddies. I don't even know what it's called. Like, we're not friends or whatever. But he's the co-founder of Slack. He says, uh, this is a quote, one of our aims at Slack is to help people bring their whole selves to work, which might sound like a little lofty ideal, but we believe that there's this widespread feeling that people are meant to check a lot of stuff at the door when they arrive at work. Some of that makes sense, but there's a risk, he says, in having people feel diminished and unable to contribute fully. Part of our hope at Slack is to have, uh, give them a shot at correcting some of that. Everything okay, Nate? All right. So what does this have to do with Song of Solomon chapter 3? You might be asking, like, I thought we were talking about Solomon, this other guy, and this woman. Let me tell you, in chapter 3, especially in the first four verses, if you have that open, there's this repeated refrain where the woman says, the one my heart loves. I'm seeking the one my heart loves. She says that three different, four different times. And it's kind of this framing statement for the, the chapter, I would say. And here's what I mean by that. The Hebrew word for the one my heart loves is one word, and it's the word nephesh. It's a really important Hebrew word. It's often translated soul. Like in the NIV, it's heart. Other translations, soul. 
But the key here is that those, those are never distinct, uh, distinct parts of yourself in the Hebrew mind. Heart, soul, body. It's all one. Uh, you never have your emotions isolated from your intentions, your desires from your mind. It's, it's all part of the nefesh, the self. They, all, they believed in Hebrew in one self, a whole self, body, soul, spirit. So literally, she's saying, uh, my tangible, intangible parts, my emotions, my, this is literally the definition of nefesh, soul, body, blood, desires, breath, your body odor, your appetites, your emotions, and your passions, your whole self. Uh, the one my whole self loves, she's bringing her whole self into this relationship with this man. And she's not checking anything at the door. She, she would be unwilling to do so. So she's bringing her whole self into this relationship. So the question for us on the table this morning is, what might that look like for us in relationships, both intimate and non-intimate? Obviously, this is an intimate relationship, but let's apply it beyond that, okay? Because we're not just in intimate relationships. Many of us, all of us, have non-intimate relationships with uh, neighbors that are very less than intimate, uh, coworkers, friends, really significant friends. And there's a level of intimacy, but how can I apply this idea, bringing my whole self to that, uh, to those relationships? What might it look like to bring our whole self to work each day, to our friendships, to our marriages, our parenting, to the church? Did any of you check anything at the door this morning when you walked in? Said this to yourself, man, I need to present something to those folks here. They're good people. Going to get dressed up for work or for church. Not to put you down if you did. Or, you know, I'm, I'm afraid if they were to come home and they saw this about my life, how messy my house is, the spaghetti all over the walls, how did, you know, somebody told me yesterday that Elliot's really behaved in Sunday school. I'm like, man, if you just came to my house, you know, and uh, he's a great kid, but would I be accepted as a pastor and my son is throwing temper tantrums? Would you be accepted if people knew your family story? That, I think that's a question we often ask ourselves. So the invitation is to learn to bring our whole selves with us everywhere we go, to every encounter, to be authentic, as we like to say at Bethany. Uh, and so to that end, uh, three exhortations, okay? Kind of three admonishments toward wholeness. And uh, you'll see them in your bulletin. Cultivate courage, embrace vulnerability, and then uh, stop trying to merely survive. I think that's how I put it, okay? We're just going to look at those that kind of go through the, uh, the chapter, okay? So let's start with cultivating courage. And this is really verse 1, but it's all kind of interwoven because note it's poetry. So you don't write a poem linearly. You never probably did when you were writing poetry in college to your, your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever you did. Uh, it's kind of all woven together in these metaphors and images. So verse 1 kind of kicks it off. And what commentators generally agree on is, is, is this woman is laying on her bed. It says, on my bed at night. And she's gen they generally agree on that this phrase, on my bed, literally means in a dream. So there's two chapters, this one and then chapter 5, which we'll look at in two Sundays. These are kind of her dreams, uh, dream chapters. And it's kind of a euphemism for her kind of brooding over, contemplating past events of her life, kind of looking back. That's what commentators agree on. Here's where they start to disagree. They don't agree on what that means, especially in the context of the characters in the story or in the dream, okay? So like I said uh, in previous weeks, we've talked about this, but there's there's two men we believe in this story, not just this one man. Uh, there's this anonymous man who's her first love, and then there's Solomon. A lot of traditional commentary believes that Solomon wrote this book early in his life, trying to maintain this idea that Solomon is um, 
this, this wise man in the Bible who gives us wisdom on how to live life, Proverbs, on how to end life, Ecclesiastes, and then how to be in relationship, right? Uh, that, that, that he wrote this prior to his kind of polygamous downward spiral when he took a thousand wives, 300 of them, by the way, concubines. So he, he, he stole them, he purchased them, took them in. So, you know, trying to read that story as if Solomon's this infallible human being, a great king, the son of David, you know, oh, God, he can't be a fallen person, right? And through that lens, uh, this, this first woman is seen kind of pining for her absent lover, Solomon, you know, pursuing him. And then she's finally, if you go to like verses, verse 4, she's swept off her feet by Solomon, right? And uh, this leads to verse 6, 11, they, they're kind of elope, they elope and then they, they go on their, that's their wedding day. I did a wedding yesterday. This is their wedding day. A lot of Bibles are going to call it. And then verse, uh, chapter 4, kind of the wedding chapter, kind of a snapshot from their wedding album. You know, this procession, verses 6 to 10, then the ceremony, verse 11, chapter 4. In fact, one commentator says it this way, thus again we see this pattern reinforced that we've seen repeated numerous times in this story. Absence, longing leads to search, discovery, and then results in intimacy and joy. Sounds like a Disney movie. If only life were that easy, right? Uh, See, indeed, Solomon was a great and renowned leader in Israel's history. Visionary, right? Known for wisdom, celebrated for uh, building the temple, um, committed to worshiping and obeying God, unlike many of the other kings of Israel. Didn't commit idolatry, sort of. If you look at his life, uh, he was a leader who from the very beginning, there were questions about his integrity. From the very beginning. Not later in his life when he took all these wives, from the very beginning. So, for example, uh, his, his reign was really a, a, a reign of progressive defiance of the Mosaic law. So, he accumulated... Uh, he, he broke the law. He accumulated a number of horses. If you look at verse, First Kings chapter 4, that he wasn't allowed to accumulate. Thousands of horses, large amounts of gold, chapter 9 of First Kings. Large, obviously, I said in First Kings 11, large amounts of women. And eventually, his accumulation of wealth and property and wives leads to outright apostasy. Maybe not idolatry, but I don't know. How different are those? You know, First Kings 11, he just kind of, eh, do I need God anymore? I've got all the women in the world, all the wealth in the world, all the property in the world. And you have people in your life like this too, right? In fact, to, to such an extent was this tension present in Solomon's life that he's often later in Israel's history amongst the rabbis who are the interpreters of the Mosaic Law and the, 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 book, the Old Testament. They, they interpret him in the same breath as Manasseh, Manasseh, who Manasseh was one of the wickedest kings of Israel. They put Solomon and Manasseh next to each other. That's, if that's you, that's a bad epitaph. Uh, and so this commentator, Ian Provane, who we've been kind of using to help interpret this, this story, and I would encourage you even to read some of his stuff, he says this. He's a um, professor at Regent College in Vancouver. He says, indeed, in the Song of Solomon, we are dealing with satire. Chapter 3, Satire, in which the great Solomon is driving around in his pretentious chariot bed. He's the mighty Solomon, but he needs 60 elite warriors to stand around and help him get safely through the night. In truth, he cuts a rather pathetic figure, if you think about it, inhabiting a lonely world of materialism and sexual conquest. So that's Solomon. And thus, here's what I want to challenge you with. We need to be at the very least open to this idea that chapter 3 of Song of Solomon represents not just one dream, but two. 
two separate, maybe united dreams, two distinct parts of one dream, maybe one very anxious night's sleep at the very least. Uh, so this woman, uh, it's a narrative about these two men who are acting in and around this woman's life. One that speaks, one dream, one part of a dream that speaks of her longing for safety and, and the other to be united with her true love. Uh, I'm sorry, that's one dream. Longing for safety, united for true love. The other it speaks of resentment she harbors toward this character, Solomon, for possessing her and taking away her freedom. And she's longing for that. So verse 1 to 4, this vision we see there, if you read it, is talking, she's, talking, she's dreaming about and feeling fear and loss and longing to return to this idea, this place of safety and relationship, intimacy. She's fallen in love with somebody uh, probably prior to meeting Solomon, probably prior to being taken away. In fact, this is kind of maybe the time she's remembering her life where it happened. She has this lover, her first love, and then here comes Solomon through the night to take her away, a sexual slave, and they become separated. And in this second part of the dream, Solomon enters in, chariot bed. He's not writing in to woo her. He's not writing in to, he's writing to capture her. These men are, are, are not there to really protect him. They're there to keep, to imprison her, if you can picture this. And it's a dream in which this woman was experiencing heartache, anguish, even trauma, actually. I mean, a very traumatic, anxious dream. And we've all had these anxious dreams, right? You've all had anxious dreams. You know, ponderings at night or during the day. You're at the desk and you're daydreaming where you're filled with loss and longing and fear. Uh, maybe even terrors of something that's happened in your life. Uh, what if I had just done this? Was it my fault? What if I'd said that? Uh, if this had happened, I mean, how do I deal with that person tomorrow? How do I approach them? They're so difficult. I don't know. And you're just wound around the axle, as we like to say, and you can't sleep. And where do those dreams generally take us? I mean, picture yourself lying in bed or sitting awake at your desk, just wrapped up in these ideas and thoughts. Uh, often we, we, we respond not only by just lying awake, or sometimes we'll just medicate, we'll take some Ambien, it's over. But this nod of anxiety and fear, oftentimes, uh, <laughs> we, we often say, wow, when that's me, our cultural conditioning, and we, I'm including myself in this, is that we kind of resort to self-medication beyond Ambien. So we binge watch, or we binge eat, you know, Ben Jerry's or, you know, Netflix, to kind of deal with the pain, right? If I can just get into this other world, check out for a little while, this world, my, my life, my past, my experiences recedes into the, the background. It won't hurt so much. Binging that often leads to unhealthy addictions, right? We even vicariously live through the lives of others. So, you, you know, your social media feed. By and large, I'm not, I am on social media, but by and large intensifies our feelings of inadequacy. As you see all these people, and you kind of go to yourself, man, if only my life were different. More like that life, his life, her life. Oh, man, I w I'd be better. Or I was talking to our staff this week about the real world. Does anybody remember the real world? Yeah, a few of you are my generation. Like, we love to watch these reality TV shows where you go, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that, right? <laughs> that's our response. And that's our society's response. And we, we, of course, we know, I don't need to preach much longer on this, how that's going for us, right? We're not healthy, I would say. Notice what this woman does do, doesn't do. She doesn't turn on Netflix, doesn't have it, but doesn't binge on Ben and Jerry's, doesn't take any Ambien. Notice what she does. 
Verse 1 to 3 and verse 6. She's, she's dreaming on her bed at night. She's seeking her lover. Uh, she's courageous, I would say. Just kind of the Cliff's Note version of those verses. She faces her fear and her loss, her longing for a relationship. She faces that. On my bed at night, I looked for him. I kept, I kept looking for him all throughout the city. Uh, she even engages her own traumatic past, if you take the second part of the dream, which is probably her present situation. Think about the bed she's maybe having this dream on, a harem bed. She's saying in a dreamlike state, man, I'll seek the one whom my soul loves. I'll go about the city. I'll find him. I'll hold him tight. And we're going to come back to that phrase there, I'll hold him tight, because it's really important. We're going to finish there. But here's the point. She's courageous in the face of her longings, disappointments, fears. And if you look at verse 6 through the lens of courage, she says this. What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? Do you realize what a column of smoke is? <laughs> what it has the capacity to do to your life? Um, if you're facing it, it's coming at you, a column of smoke. What, is it, what can it do to you? Nothing. Maybe a tornado. I'm talking about just a column of smoke. Nothing. Isn't that amazing? You could say what you want about this dream, but do you realize what she's saying about Solomon? He's like a column of smoke. He has no substance. He has no physical weight. He's impotent. He's hollow. Uh, he's, he's trying to exercise immense power over my life and the lives of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women. Yet ultimately, he has no power. He does not control me. I'm free. Ultimately, I'm free. I can almost hear Paul uh, saying in Romans chapter, uh, verse, about verse 5, in Romans chapter, he says, I'm absolutely convinced, remember when Paul says this, that nothing, nothing living, nothing dead, nothing angelic, nor de demonic, I mean, we think of de demons as like, wow, they have the power to take me down. Paul says, Not, nothing demonic, nothing today, nothing tomorrow, nothing yesterday, nothing in all of creation can get between us and God. And if if the other man in this story is God, the image of God, the person of God, nothing, not a, Solomon, not anything can get in the way of that love. Who is God? What's more, look at verse 11. I love this part. She says, Go out, daughters of Jerusalem, who, as some commentators suggest, are these fellow concubines in this harem with her. She says, Go out and look. Look at Solomon. Again, you have to go with me. If this is satire, sarcasm, she's saying, go out, have courage. He's, he's pathetic. He has no power over you. And I know our cultures, especially to the women in the room, are, is trying to do this, to disempower you. And I would just, I would just say, based on what the, the story of God tells us in Song of Solomon, the culture has no power over you. None of us in the room. Nothing can come between you and the love of God and who God has made you, man and woman. Uh, and so she's learned that lesson. And I love it, she's teaching it to other women. Uh, she's kind of like doing a prison Bible study. I used to do prison Bible studies. I love this idea. She's in there saying, hey, there's nothing that can hold you captive. Your identity is in Christ. Uh, courage can be taught is what I think this is about. And by the way, it's, it's not just reserved. I'll just go a little further on this as something taught by and for men. Like if you watch most movies, this is why I love the, the two most recent Star Wars movies. M take Star Wars as a, as a series of movies. Every one of the heroes 
up until the last two, have been men. In fact, the women in the stories, you remember Leah in those previous movies? And, and so you have Jin and you have Ray in these last two facing really hard pasts. And don't worry about the art form of Star Wars. Just set it aside. I know some of you are like, eh, it's not the best movie in the world, but neither is Harry Potter, so it's okay. <laughs> this is very important, though. What our culture is now saying, and this courage is not just something reserved for men. Women, <laughs> everyone can be taught, and, and our daughters, if you have daughters, you can teach courage. I watch those movies with my daughter. I love seeing as she identifies with these characters. It's really powerful. And this is important both in and outside of our church. I mean, think about this. Many of, like, if you, if I were to ask you, who are the most courageous figures in the entire story of God? I mean, many of us often go, this, go here. We, we think of, I'll wait. It's good. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, Jenny. If it's warm, open the windows. It won't bother me. It's good. It's, I know this is going to be a thing until the furnace goes off. But think about this. Um, story of God, who are some of the most courageous figures that we immediately snap to? We have David. We have, because he defeated Goliath. We teach that in Sunday school, right? Joshua, you know, his army gets taken down. Mighty men, right? Moses, crossing the Red Sea. We made a Disney movie about it. It's awesome. Joseph. Yeah, faces his brothers. It's good. It is. Those are good stories. Rarely, though, do we talk about these courageous women of the Bible like Esther, who faced a tyrannical king with the help of her, like, was it her uncle? <laughs> I mean, this is amazing. Xerxes, if you read his story, was a tyrant. And this Jewish woman caught in another harem says, I can face that. You have Mary Magdalene who faces the horror of an empty tomb, and where are the other disciples? The men. They're running the other way. <laughs> you have Ruth, who, uh, you know, she and her mother-in-law lose their entire family, their, the men, which is, by the way, in that culture means you're as good as dead. You have no way to earn an income. You're a widow, so you are the lowest of the low. And what does Ruth say? Hey, you're God, my God. Where you go, I go. I'm in this with you. She's the most courageous person. She goes out to Boaz and says, hey, we, feed us. I'll do anything so that Naomi, we can survive. Isn't that amazing? And we don't talk about those stories, not, neither very much in the church nor with our families when you sit down and talk about the story of God. We need to be doing this. Teach courage. That's the cultivate courage. That's the exhortation here. Both by just simply reading those stories. And here's significantly for you individually, just beginning to learn to walk into your fears step by step. You know, as Elizabeth Elliot says, if you're scared, here's the deal. Do it scared. Don't stop. Don't let fear freeze you. If you know Elizabeth Elliot, we, we talk about her occasionally around here. Richard, Richard loves her. I, I think she's great too. Her husband, Jim, was a missionary in Ecuador and martyred, if you remember this back in the 80s. And after he was killed, she was completely paralyzed by fear and anxiety. And she, she was not free to, she tells her story, to really be who she wanted to be, do what she wanted to do, uh, and, and really step out in the ways that God was calling her, which was to go back to Ecuador and continue the mission. She's, she's, she's frozen in her tracks. Until this one day, a friend speaks these three words to her that changed her life. And you know what those words were? Elizabeth, do it afraid. That's it. 
In fact, her friend said, whoever said we couldn't do it afraid? And you know what her friend said? It wasn't God. You know what the most repeated command in the Bible is? Do not fear. Which is God saying, walk into your fear. Because fear will come. And do not, do not let fear, nothing can separate you. Take the next step. In fact, I've read somewhere that there are about 365 fear knots in the Bible. That's one for every day. You could read one every day. There's your devotional. Just another way of acknowledging that every person in God's story who was ever used by God, every person, Moses, Esther, Jacob, David, Ruth, every person at one point had to do it afraid. They had to. These people are, were filled with fear, so do it afraid. You've got a whole company of people doing it with you. Uh, so what might that look like in your life? I mean, it might look like trying to get pregnant after your third miscarriage. That's a way of doing it afraid. That, it might be like sitting with your wife as she, after she's diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. We have some good friends where that's the case. And just sitting, saying, hey, let's do this afraid. We can do this. God is with us, not against us. Maybe that's making plans for your children's future when you're looking at the world around you and just wondering, is it going to be here? Why would I save? <laughs> Why would I invest? Why would I send them to school? Why not just go to Hawaii? Uh, maybe it's going out on a date after another failed relationship or a, a seeking community in the midst of a season of loneliness or risking intimacy in your marriage when it's just been a cold, absent journey for the last year or two or three Maybe just sitting with a person in this huge crisis that they're facing and just being silent, courageous enough to be silent and not say a word. And you know, if any of you have ever mustered any kind of that, that kind of courage before in your life, you know that right after you do that, it's a powerful moment, right? Uh, Brene Brown, one of my favorite authors, says of that moment, after you've just shut up, sat in it, done it scared, you know what she says of that moment? She says, that's a moment, the feeling in that moment is when, my, my, when I'm aligned with my values. What I do is align with my values. And courage is my value. And when I'm, when I'm aligned with my values, I'm in that moment, that's, that's, the, that's, that's where you want to be in faith. But then she says this, I want to go to this next point. You can't get the courage, so cultivate courage. And this is Brene Brown. You can't get the courage without walking through vulnerability. You can't, they're, they're, they, they kind of go together. They're in this symbiotic relationship. So you can't get the courage without walking through vulnerability. So verse 4, here's the second exhortation. Embrace vulnerability. So, uh, you know, I'll get to verse 4, but Solomon, if you skip down to verses 7 and 8, he's this picture of invulnerability, this neurotic fear of losing all of his power and status and influence. Here's, the, here's verses 7 and 8 again. Look, it's Solomon's carriage escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing a sword, all experienced in battle, each with his own sword, prepared for the terrors of the night. His life is, it seems to know nothing of intimacy. If he needs to go everywhere with 60 men with swords carrying him. Uh, and then verse 4, look at this. I, I just love this. She's gone out at night, which is a very vulnerable thing to do in that culture for her into a city where there's watchmen who are patrolling, probably looking for these harem women, trying to escape. It's verse 4, she scarcely had I passed them when I found 
the one my heart loves, my nephesh. I held him. I would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. Uh, now, this is going to get a little more PG-13, but you know where when you're a kid about your parents' bedroom and you made jokes about not wanting to walk in on them and stuff. Uh, you know about where your parents conceived you. And really, I think what she's saying is this is a space of total vulnerability. My parents are in bed together. They are, as Psalm 139 says, uh, conceiving me. I'm beautifully and wonderfully made. So the exhortation here is to embracing vulnerability as a means to knowing or experiencing courage, uh, as a means to ultimately, like I, I've said at the beginning, becoming whole. So becoming naked <laughs> with who you are, just taking it off versus kind of surrounding yourself with all the things that protect you from being seen. And I'll just say vulnerability is, though maybe become more popular with Brene Brown and people like her, is a pretty unpopular notion in our culture, right? Uh, you know, especially like amongst men. Take this for example. I mentioned Brene Brown. Anybody know who I'm talking about with Brene Brown? She's a psychologist or a sociologist at um, some university. Texas. Texas somewhere. Brown University somewhere down there. Has written some great books, but she has this great audible that I think Sean or maybe Dustin turned me on to called Men, Women, and Worthiness. It's two hours, audible. I would just invest two hours you'll invest in if you're a parent, or if you're married, or you're in a dating relationship, I swear, best two hours you can invest. And she has this story in there because she, early in her career and still today, really focuses on women. As a woman, focuses her practice on women and kind of how women deal with shame. But she was at this book signing. After all, she's done a talk and she's signing books. And this husband and wife come up to her. And the woman has all these books, herself and her friends and her daughters. And she tells the story that the woman walks away, and the man, the husband, stays behind and needs to talk to her. And so he's talking to her, and he says, you know, I loved everything you had to say, uh, but you said nothing that could apply to my life. Nothing for men. Nothing. And she's like, what do you mean? I mean, you could just apply it one for one. She's like, he's like, no, 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 here's the thing. The, the idea of the knight in shining armor in our culture, in my life, is very powerful, very potent. And here's what my daughters and my wife who just walked off would rather see. They'd rather see me die on top of my horse than fall off in an effort to save them. And that's shame for men. Like, die trying. <laughs> just be the man, you know? Uh, don't be vulnerable. Like, if you fail, don't admit it. <laughs> just kind of hide it. Uh, cover it. And so, the, you know, the key here is the story of God. Here's Song of Solomon 3. The gospel, it really calls us to this radical embrace of vulnerability, men and women, uh, as a means toward wholeness. You take uh, Hebrews chapter 4. I often, I'll pull this open for you, but I often pray this when I will begin teaching because it is one of my favorite images, obviously around the Word of God, but one of my favorite images in the Bible. This is Hebrews, Hebrews 4.11. It says, Let us therefore strive to enter the rest that God has for us, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the attention of the heart. And no creature, verse 13, is hidden from his sight. So the word is him, 
Jesus, not just this book I'm talking about. And all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. And so you take that idea, the Word of God being alive and active, it's Jesus. Uh, and actually the image there is from, really from warfare. Uh, as I've studied this in, in seminary, the image is if, if, you're in a, if you're in a field of battle, you have another, your enemy with his boot to your neck and his sword is out and he's ready to end it. The Word of God is like that. It exposes us. It's a boot to the neck. But here's the beautiful thing about the Word of God. Uh, we are not slain by it. God, Jesus is not coming to kill you. He's come to bring you to life. He doesn't use a sword on us. Um, th- like, you know, take this and go, <laughs> you know, cut you. It's not what this is about. He's not about that. Uh, he's about bringing revelation into your life, which, if you read it in context, Hebrews 4, is really about rest. Strive to enter the rest that God has for you. Lay down from your weary strife. And Jesus brings that by, through vulnerability. Uh, and so, what might that look like to kind of come vulnerable, uh, as I, the image from Song of Solomon 3 of a husband and wife, and now you're kind of like, well, wait, I thought we were going to try and apply this to friendships and to my work life. And might, what might it look like to, uh, embrace, like to embrace vulnerability? in all areas of my life. Radical availability. Well, this is where the last point is really important. Uh, stro- stop trying to merely survive. This is really how you get to vulnerability. And this is that second dream, okay, verses 5 to 11. So you have 60 armed men protecting Solomon from these terrors by night. Like I said, it's a, it's a portrait that's ironic in some sense because it's about nothing more than survival for Solomon, right? Uh, survival, ironically, that is passivity. He is literally being carried by other people who are bringing women to him, guarding his bed so they can't leave. He's doing nothing except kind of commanding here. Even with respect to his throne, if you look at 1 Kings chapter 1, it tells us that when Adonijah sought to become king and take it from Solomon, read this sometime, uh, Solomon didn't do anything. It's actually Solomon's mother who defended the throne. In fact, right here in Song Song of Solomon chapter 3, his mother is crowning him. It's kind of like Circe from Game of Thrones, which I'm looking forward to, by the way. Uh, So contrast that with the woman's vulnerability in pursuit of her lover, verses 1, 2, and 3. Like verse 1, all night long I looked for my nephesh. I looked but I could not find him. Verse 2, I'm going to get up now, go about the city, it's dangerous, through its streets, I will search for the one my heart loves, my nephesh. This is a po- portrait of persistent, continuous pursuit. Seeking, searching, rising, going about, asking, hey, have you seen him? Longing for him. It's a true posture of vulnerability in the night, <laughs> in a city ruled by men, very courageous, that's the opposite of passive self-preservation, okay? It's risky, it's dangerous, and it's, this is the work of intimacy, which is not merely survival. Intimacy is not about survival. You will not get to survival by, through intimacy. It's, danger, it's dangerous, intimacy is. It's like laying down your weapons. It's this image from Hebrews 4, like being exposed to God. God, what do you want to do in my life? What do you want to do through my life? 
Is there anything that needs to be taken away? Anything that needs to be added? And by the way, put in the broader context of Song of Solomon, as, as well as the story of God, it's always uh, this kind of risky intimacy is always a mutual endeavor. It's never one-sided. So uh, rather than belonging only to the world of men, uh, like, you know, we have men pursue women, right? We were probably, a lot of guys were taught this. You ask girls out to dances, and there's that one dance a year. What's it called? Tolo or whatever it is, you know? That's what we do. Uh, Men pursue. No, this is always mutual. So the best love stories are about mutual pursuit. I'm going to tell you in a second here from John chapter 3, a, a love story of Jesus and the woman at the well. John 3 or 4. four. Uh, but the, the best love stories have mutual pursuit in them. The worst are not love stories at all. A one-sided pursuit is not a love story at all, but they're stories of using power, control, manipulation in order to bring a person into your orbit in some way, shape, or form. And our world knows all about this, right? Uh, we, we use this all the time, this sort of passivity in relationships. Like people like consumer items, I can just kind of pull down from a shelf, kind of use it, the relationship, intimate, non-intimate, for however long I need it or want it. And then when I don't, neglect it. And certainly I'm not going to sacrifice for somebody else. Like lose some things. To, I mean, no, you're a consumer item. I, I need return on investment here, right? It better be worth it. And if it's inconvenient or hard, oh, that's even worse. Uh, so deeply ingrained in our society is this profoundly consumeristic, consumeristic, deeply broken view of relationships that, that transcend intimacy between a man and a woman at every level. I read this New York Times article a couple years ago. This is like November 2013 about the online dating phenomenon. I know a number of you are using things like Tinder and Bumble and OkCupid. It's, it's fine. I'm not criticizing that. But listen to this. This article says this. The author writes this. Traditional courtship, like picking up the telephone and asking someone out on a date, required courage, strategic planning, and considerable investment of ego. Remember, have any of you ever, do you remember what the phone was? Remember that? You used to pick it up and then you hit the buttons or sometimes rotary. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And then somebody else on the other line would pick up and you had a conversation. Now we just do text messages. Uh, but it used to require courage because sometimes the person wouldn't pick up. Sometimes they'd hang up. Sometimes the phone would be busy. You've never heard of a busy signal, but it, it would happen. And then you wonder, oh, maybe they're talking to that other guy. Rejection stings. <laughs> this is not true with email. You get my email, you know, because it just, it goes. Texting, Twitter, these sort of forms of asynchronous communication, as techies call it, like, in the context of dating or in relationships, it just removes much of the need for charm. I don't have to charm you. I just kind of blast you, like dropping a line in water and hoping for a nibble. <laughs> That's kind of what relationships are today. Uh, in fact, this is what the author says. I've seen, <laughs> speaking of men and women, I've seen men put more effort into finding a movie to watch on Netflix Instant than composing a coherent message to ask a woman out. It's true. Uh, Online dating services kind of re- reinforce this hyper-casual approach to relationships. Like, they're like online job applications. Target as many people as you want simultaneously, right? And, and it's like darts on a board. Just, I hope I hit the target. I just hope, right? And by the way, like I said, I know a lot of you have cultivated great love and friendship. And 
nobody, not naming names, Nate, but I had to call you out at least once. Like, uh, I know this has happened. Many, some of you have gotten married, and it's been like, wow, this is amazing. You met on Bumble. What's Bumble, you know? And, and I know many of you for whom social media is a great way of connecting and cultivating intimacy and friendship with people who are not with you around the world somewhere. I know some of you who are from other places in the world. This is the only way you can imagine now, connecting. And so I want to be clear, I'm not dismissing that at all, okay? That's not my point here. It's not unchristian to use OkCupid. It's not, okay? But here's my point. Love, and when I say love, hear this in the broadest sense. We are called to love each other. God is a God of love. Deep engagement and intimacy, relationships. They take time. They require patience. They build slowly. That's just true. And they call for courage and a vulnerability and availability that you cannot discover online. They require confession and forgiveness. They require face-to-face encounter. And the truth is that in our on-demand fast food same-day delivery culture, where a, a drone can just drop anything at your front door now, not yet, I'm hoping, but this is becoming increasingly more difficult for us to understand as well as practice. We're not wired for it anymore, to extend the metaphor. Uh, so how, the question I want to leave you with now is how do we pursue each other in relationship? How do we not merely try and survive anymore, but really enter into deep intimacy in a way that reflects the heartbeat of Jesus? I mentioned this example from John chapter 4. I think this is the classic example in the Bible. Jesus and the woman at the well. If you read the story, and you don't need to look at it right now, but read it sometime this week. It'll, you'll see this line in there in John 4. Jesus had to go through Samaria. It's as if the author's saying there was something that he needed to take care of. And if you know the broader story, Jews, especially Jewish rabbis, did not go through Samaria. They took great pains to go around Samaria because they were usually headed to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship. And if you go through Samaria, you're not clean, you can't worship. Jesus had to go through Samaria, which means he's not going in the temple, which means he's now unclean. Oh, by the way, what happens in Samaria? (laughs) He is thirsty because they've been walking out in the desert uh, hot, and he's hungry. So he sends his disciples away to get food, and what does he do? He asks the Samaritan woman for a drink. So he had to go through Samaria, and why? <laughs> to get a drink from a woman. Now Jesus is really unclean. These are like really courageous steps for Jesus. To ask a Samaritan woman, to go through Samaria, to ask a Samaritan woman is like picking up the phone as a middle schooler and saying, hey, would you like to go out? Really? He is taking a huge step of faith. And then it's obvious they they had a conversation because she goes back home and she says, I want you to come meet this man who told me everything I'd ever done. He knew everything about me. And you don't get to know that in a tweet. It wasn't a five-second conversation. They spent time there. And, she, and he spoke boldly into her life. He, he earned the right to be heard, as we say in Young Life. And she comes back and says, hey, I want you to meet this guy. He's amazing. Could he be the Messiah? It's profoundly mutual. And on a, on a horizontal level, let's just apply this real quick and then we'll finish. Uh, this is you and me going out of our way to 
hear people, to see people, and to know people who are very different, maybe inconvenient for us. When I was working with uh, New Horizons Ministries on Capitol Hill um, years ago now, I was living on um, right off Broadway with a couple guys, Derek and Joe, and we'd go out and by the dicks, we were close to the dicks, and we'd just kind of walk at night and stuff. And there's this young girl who was sitting in front of Dick's three in the morning. And there's no, Dick's is closed. You know, it's just nobody there. And I'm walking, and so uh, she's just sitting there, and she's got her face down, and she's just, you know, she's got the hat out. And so I sat down next to her, and I, I said, hey, what's your name? She told me your name. And we started to talk, and we're just sitting next to each other. There's really nobody around, a few cars passing. Sir makes a lot, you know. I'm just kidding. So we're um, talking, and she starts to cry. And, I, and I'm worried. I, did I say something offensive? Did I get too close? And I, so I just said, hey, I can just, if you can just picture Jesus at the well. I'm not saying I'm Jesus, but at the well. Uh, did I say something to offend you? And you know what she told me? I've been here all day. And you're the first person to stop. And you're the first person who's ever asked my name. And that took uh, courage for her to stick in that with me and reveal that. It obviously was inconvenient to go out at three at night with these two roommates of mine who loved it and I hated it because I love my sleep. Um, so on, the, on a horizontal level, just go out of your way when it's inconvenient to, to seek to see somebody, to know them, to hear them. That's the application here, Okay. On a vertical level, and I'll finish here, make knowing God central to your life. Central, not peripheral. And I don't know where church and coming to church on Sundays and your devotions fit into kind of your weekly calendar, but make knowing God the center of that, not the periphery. All of us are invited to pursue Jesus. Wherever you are in that kind of journey, all of us are invited to pursuing Christ, and not just in a way that's peripheral, Remember what Paul says in Philippians 3. I quote, because it's one of my favorites. Whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything. Imagine his calendar, his Google calendar. Everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. And he uses a four-letter word in Greek there that I might gain Christ, be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, just doing things, performing religion, but one that comes from faith. I want to, and here's the great prayer, I want to know Christ, the power of His resurrection, participation in His sufferings, by becoming like Him in His death, so that somehow I might attain the resurrection from the dead. This is an invitation toward knowing, intimate knowing, disarmed, naked knowing, with Jesus. In whatever space that happens for you, a cup of coffee before your kids wake up and begin to make noise. <laughs> uh, in your car, on your commute, listening to some worship music from last Sunday's set or today. Maybe taking a walk in our city, getting out of the city or taking a walk in our city and just observing all the noise and, and celebrating that God has brought so many different people together. It's, it's about knowing God and whatever God brings through your day. And saying this, God, this is who I am. I'm full of fear, 
I'm anxious. I'm full of cynicism and doubt. I'm kind of angry right now with the way things are going. And this is who you are. Not who you said you'd be, but who you are. You're with me. You are patient. You're kind. You're forgiving. You're gracious. You're slow to anger. And then, God, thank you for who you are. And, 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 and put, whoever you are with me, would you, can I, would, I, would you give me the strength to exchange my life for your life? My anxiety for your peace, my anger for your mercy, my doubts for your forgiveness. God, would that happen in this encounter we have? We're called toward that, this continuous intimacy with Christ. And the bottom line, I said this at the beginning, is that we might hold Jesus, hold on to Jesus. She finds him in verse 4. And she holds on to him, and she says, I would not let him go. Picture this as Jesus in this story, this first love of this woman, because that's who I believe it is. Have you said that about Jesus? Jesus, I found you, and I will not let you go, because I love you so much. And you woo me. You're, you're that loving toward me. Would you grasp him this week? That's my invitation. And so toward that end, I want to invite Andrew up. Well, actually, the whole worship team. Uh, this is funny. I'll give you the context of this song. We're going to sing a new song that Andrew and his sister Abby wrote. And here's the context. It's, a gr- it's great. Um, I don't want to oversell it, though, but it's great. It's going to be awesome. No, you could not oversell this. I think it's beautiful. Um, I had asked Andrew, there's this one song that I really wanted during this series about love. And he came back and said, ah, it's going to be a hard song to sing. It doesn't, you know, it's like 15 minutes long. <laughs> true. Uh, so then he went away and wrote a song with his sister. He's been working on it for a month for us to sing together. And the invitation is that we might hold on to Jesus, grasp and not letting go. So will we do that? And if you want to say any more about this, this uh, song, I invite you to do so, my friend.